Yes, hello again, everyone, and welcome back to None But the Brave, a presentation of Evergreen Podcasts. I am Hal Schwartz, and as always, I'm here with my great buddy, Flynn McLean. Flynn, what's been happening? Seems like we got a, a little bit going on. We got uh, that new John Mellencamp single with Bruce, Wasted Days. And we got the Dion, the new Dion song with Bruce and Patty. I forget the name of it off the top of my head. Is it <laughs> Angels you... in the Alleyway? All right. And uh, both of them are really good. Uh, not quite as up there, not quite my favorite Bruce collaborations over the last year and a half, but definitely not not throwaways. Yeah, definitely not throwaways. The Mellencamp song, well, first of all, I find it interesting that Bruce has lent his entire support system, it seems, to Mellencamp to the extent that he has. John obviously has been hanging out with him. They shot the video on Bruce's farm. Mm-hmm. And it was directed by Zimney. So he basically plugged him <laughs> into his infrastructure, which we know has existed for quite a while, at least as it relates to Tom and Bruce. The song itself, it's sweet and poignant. How many minutes do we have left, they ask? And these are two men in their 70s, and they are obviously approaching the end of their lives more so than the beginning. So I, I think there's a lot to like about it. Is it amazing uh, i i would say probably not <laughs> no but uh it's good i think it, it fits with some of the themes of uh of both letter to you and western stars in terms of mortality and i and i thought the dion song uh was actually pretty cool in that it uh it sounded a lot like town called a heartbreak <laughs> to believe it or not maybe that's there's a lot of Patty contribution on there and really not much from Bruce. But. It, it, yeah, I, it, it's really not a lot of Bruce. Bruce in the video is standing in the background behind Patty. It's like he's like hanging out, hanging out. Oh, time to play harmonica. <laughs> he plays. She goes back. She's really good on the track. She sounds great. That That is a good track. I, I enjoyed listening to it. Dion yeah, I, is is really doing good work still. Uh, I think he's in his 80s now. Yeah, yes he is. Yeah, I liked it a lot more than I than I thought I would and I'll I'll be adding that to my little warm-up uh track listing <laughs> to, to go along with uh, the Bleacher song and uh and Highway to Hell. Yeah, I'm going to add it to my playlist as well. And and just getting back to the Mellencamp for a moment. What did you make of the fact that what I was saying that Bruce is sort of plugged Mellencamp into his infrastructure. We know Bruce also is on a another couple of songs on that record. Obviously, we don't know the answer to this. I don't think anyone knows the answer to it yet, other than that they were talking and they they struck up an idea and, and Bruce went out to Indiana, I guess, and recorded it. But doesn't it seem a little strange, that this collaboration? Not really. It's, it's one of those things where they have such a... They seem to have a brotherhood of... I mean, they kind of come from the same blue-collar background and they hit... They hit the top of the charts about the same time. Um, well, I guess Mellencamp was a little bit later than Bruce, but I guess in the 80s, when you think of that kind of rock, it's it's Bruce, Mellencamp, Seeger. So it's really not that big of a surprise. And now that they're older and they have more more yesterdays than tomorrows, as Joe Grzecki once once wrote, they're, they're kind of they're, they're bonding over it finally. Okay, and well. and it really doesn't it doesn't really surprise me. It may be as much as Surprised me that it took this long for the, for them to really to really connect, um, but uh, you know I'm looking forward to the other other two songs and th- there's no release date for this album, right? I haven't seen it. Okay, I thought I read it. It just said 2022, so 
<laughs> kind of uh, that's kind of ambivalent or ambiguous, rather. The one thing that did strike me was that Bruce did get co-credit. You, you think when Bruce guests on a record, generally it's the person's record, and it it may say with Bruce Springsteen, but here the the song is billed on the cover: John Kellen, John Mellencamp, Bruce Springsteen, Wasted Days. So. Just uh, it, it seems a little unusual to me, but I think we're, we should be happy to have it. Well, I think in all the other situations where Bruce has guessed it over the last couple of years and really most of his career, um, that the other artist has written the song entirely himself and they brought in Bruce just to do a couple do a couple of verses or, or the chorus. Maybe this time it, it's a true co-write. Oh, and, that's a good I mean, they point. were in the, they were in the studio. I, I mean, obviously it was what, March or April and. Maybe they were there for a while and we didn't know about it and they were able to, to really collaborate um, more than just Bruce lending vocals. I mean, if Bruce was just lending vocals, he could do that from from New Jersey and just email the file. So maybe there was more going on than just just adding vocals. Yeah. And perhaps there's more going on even now because they spent, it seemed like, a decent amount of time together in Jersey over the summer. Well, I assume a lot of that was they were filming the uh, filming the video for the song. And, you know, and maybe that's what uh, Bruce did. He said, hey, Bruce, I mean, he said, hey, John, come on out to the beach and uh, in New Jersey and we'll uh, have I have my guy Tom film the video and we'll just hang out here for a while. And therefore, you know, Bruce doesn't have to go to Indiana again, <laughs> especially, in, especially in the summer when he loves his Jersey Shore so much. The part is in a lot of stuff these days. Well, it makes it it does make a, for, for a pretty cool backdrop, especially with the American flag uh, hanging, yeah. hanging over the door. So one day Bruce is going to have to release some kind of video or something where he gives everyone a tour of the uh, farm. <laughs> that would be pretty cool. Uh, what, one more little Bruce connection here. Actually, it's more Springsteen connection than just Bruce is that this new movie uh, Mustangs, where that Jessica and Patty actually are executive producers and Bruce lent a song or gave a song. It's Chasing Wild Horses from Western Stars, but it's a song nonetheless. <laughs> that is true. You have nothing to say about that. <laughs> well, I don't, I haven't seen the movie, so well, I don't I have, know I have, what I can I, say about it. I, I mean, I know is it about even it. out? Is it even out? Yeah. I think they said it's coming out tomorrow. Okay. All right. So, yeah, I'm probably not going to see it, but uh, I would have been more excited about it had Bruce, you know, contributed a previously unreleased song. But uh, it's good to see it's good to see actually Patty and Jess taking their hand at executive producing and getting this film out, and it seems like a subject very close to their hearts. Uh, certainly, I support anyone who can get a movie made in today's day and time. So let's move on to our main topic. And we're going to be talking about Tracks Disc 2 today, not Tracks 2, although I'm sure we'll mention that at some point. Because one day, we like now, to. One but day, you know. Tracks Disc 2. And this is really coming out of our interview with Steve. Uh, of course, I asked him the question about loose ends where he talked about the lost arguments. And, and this episode is titled The Lost Arguments because here they are. And what we thought was that it would be interesting to approach after having done the Steve interview, first of all, because we did get a lot of really good feedback from that and we appreciate it. When we were talking about it, we were first going to do the magic tour. And then we 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 changed lanes and we landed on this. We audible. Which, uh, <laughs> we did audible. <laughs> At the last minute. <laughs> the last second, and, just before calling out the, the time. So, and here we go. We're going to take a look at Tracks Disc 2. We're going to start, of course, at the beginning with Restless Nights. Uh, Flynn, what do you think here? 
Well, the first thing I want to say about uh, about this about this disc is that really the first 14 songs are basically the River Disc Three. Um, I know there are a couple of Born in the USA era songs in there, but they fit obviously perfectly in in here. But it's a this is an album tracks one one through 14. Restless Nights Through Stolen Car. That's that that's a complete album that. As, uh, as Steve would probably would argue that that would have been a, a career album for a lot of people. For sure, it would be one of the best Bruce Springsteen records. We're going to obviously take the tracks in order and talk about them separately. But the bottom line is you have five or six potential massive hits here. As I preface that question to Steve about loose ends, uh, and you have to put it in the context of 1980. Obviously, if we're talking in 2021, <laughs> Loose Ends is not a hit in 2021. We understand that. But we're talking about in the context of 1980 when the record was released. These were massive hits left left off a record. Yeah, they weren't even it's not even they weren't released as singles. They weren't even released at all. And it's just amazing that his he had such such a focused vision of what he wanted to do that he was willing to sacrifice massive a massive hit just to, to say what he wants to say. And obviously I'm not. I'm not saying anything new there, but it's still it's very surprising once you you really get into the into these songs. Well, Steve had an interesting take on that because and he brought up that Loose Ends and and you reacted to this. Loose Ends was on the first version of the river, the ties that bind, and then it was dropped. So at the very beginning, they considered it to be a very large piece of that project, I imagine, because it was on the record. Yeah, it gets dropped later on when they go to an even larger record it is quite mysterious yeah it's very surprising that they just didn't take that that single disc the single the single album as as was released on the ties of bind box and just do another 10 or 11 songs and call that disc too or or, or sides c and c and d but they just he just he really went back to the drawing board entirely and it's that's just it's amazing that he, that he was able to do that and that the record company let him do that. So let's talk about Restless Nights, which is a big track. Very, <laughs> very big track. I unfortunately didn't see it the one time it was played live. I know you did. It was always my dream that that would be played live. And it just, this is a track. And Steve, I was reading Brian's book today, Brian Hyatt's uh, book, uh, The Stories Behind the Songs, which we like to refer to. And, and he's got Steve in there saying to David Frick in 2016, in regards to Restless Nights, what do you mean you're throwing this song? Other people would have a career with it. <laughs> Restless Nights, that's a career. I mean, Steve is basically saying to Frick there that anyone else, this would have been their number one seminal hit played every night in the encores. And, and it didn't even make the record. And of course, that's why it's lost argument. Steve wanted it on the record. Right. And yeah, and. But what's interesting is that it wouldn't fit on – it doesn't fit on the river. I don't know – musically and even lyrically, I don't know where it would go. I, it's a great song. It stands on its own, but it's not something you can just plug and play on 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 the river. I would agree with that because this is the sort of power pop he didn't really have on the record. He had a bunch of songs here that could have been grouped on a record. Mm-hmm. But since he chose to leave them all off, then really something like Restless Nights wouldn't have fit. Now, some of the other ones 
certainly would have fit. And, and we're going to get to that. But I agree with you. It's hard to see where Restless Nights would be dropped into the river because it's so hard driving. And the the keyboard, it, it, the way it drives the song, it just doesn't fit musically, really, I don't think, with any of the other songs on the existing record. I mean, I think the closest would be uh, Jackson Cage. Yeah, that is the closest. And even any he, and lyrically, it, it, it doesn't it doesn't it's not a one to one match for that one. It's not like I want to be with you and crush on you. This he doesn't do a lot of breakup songs <laughs> on the river. I mean, I, I, unless I'm missing something and, you know, like, and no, I'm not missing anything. There's there's no breakup songs, whereas half of these songs are, which is always interesting to me. Well, that is a good point. And so I, we're saying also, in addition to the musicality of it, really thematically, you don't think Restless Nights would have fit. No, not at all. Not at all. Now, what is interesting is that there are not a lot of guitar solos on the river. I think there's Sherry Darling. And you can look maybe at the start. But that's it. And then Restless Nights has that killer guitar solo in the bridge. And even on the on the on the old circulating bootlegs, the the Restless Night uh, track was longer, and it had that really cool killer guitar solo and, and organ solo at the end that got that got cut from tracks. But oh. he didn't go in that direction, not and it, which is really mostly surprising, considering what happened on the Darkness tour with with all that guitar he was playing then. I guess we're, what we're saying is sensibly. His, his process at the end did lead lead to a sensible result, which was leaving this incredible song off the record. Is that, are you agreeing with that? Yeah, I am agreeing with that. I think the, what the river does and what it is, is it's a very cohesive album. It's a very, it, it's a, it has a singular vision and this song did not fit with it, no matter how good it is. And, what they could have done is at the end of the tour or at some point done a 10, a 10 song outtake set. You know, like the new album by Bruce Springsteen in 1982 or something, 1980 at the, in 1981. But that obviously, you know, comes under the shoulda, coulda, woulda category that we so often talk about with, in terms of Bruce. So let's move on to a good man is hard to find I, the, the sequencing here. And we are evaluating tracks this too, as, this cohesive disc, because we know he meant it as that. The fact that he pulled this Born in the USA outtake out and plopped it into the middle of these river songs. I was thinking about it today. Uh, now, this is a song that, according to the logs, was recorded very early on at the power station, right? In 82. Right? Yeah. So this is early on in the Born in the USA sessions. It's actually, and I think, during the election of Nebraska era. Right. right. Well, a that's April of April of 82, April, May of 82. So and and that probably it probably does give a clue as to what Electric Nebraska some of those songs mm-hmm. sound like, don't you think? I do, absolutely I do, and it's it's not <laughs> obviously it's, it's it stays in that kind of a cool acoustic low key highway patrolman from the USA tour uh, uh, style. So it's not exactly uh, you know the, the rocking set that so many people kind of envisioned, including myself at one point. Now, why do you think he put this between Restless Nights and uh, Roulette? Well, actually, I do have a theory on that, is that uh, if you look at all the other songs from the River Sessions here, 
they're all they're all rockers. There's no ballad amongst them until you get to Soul and Car at the end. So he puts in a uh, good man is hard to find Pittsburgh and then wages a sin just to to kind of give you a chance to take it, take a breath. Oh, that makes a lot of sense to me. And I, I like that. I'm sure it's just a coincidence. These songs also both take place in Pennsylvania. Of course, this song takes place in Pittsburgh and Three Mile Island was also in Pennsylvania. But I, could that have been on his mind? Uh, you know, maybe, but um, I'm, that's I've never thought about that. And I don't see that, but okay. <laughs> I'm just throwing it out there. All right. Well, I mean, that's what we do. We throw that throw a theory out there and see and see what what can happen. Exactly. All right. So let's let's move on to roulette. Uh, legendary. The the legend has it. It was the first song recorded recorded for the river, and as you said, inspired by Three Mile Island. And this one is just a powerhouse song. It's I mean, it it rocks more than basically any other song in from these sessions. It is just titanic. <laughs> I, it has always been titanic. I remember when they finally did release it in 1988, the excitement that they were releasing it, because, of course, a lot of fans had heard it already. It was a legendary outtake. Hyatt's book tells a story that Bob Clearmountain is, is working on the song, and he says to Bruce, this has got to be a single. It's so topical. And Landau was like, shut up. Don't say that to him. <laughs> And it, of course, it winds up not getting released. Now, you talk about a song that would have been a potential hit. This is a song that is just so well-written and such a powerhouse, as you said. It, it really is, and we're going to probably have the same discussion, would it have fit on the river? And and it doesn't. I mean, No, it doesn't at all. No. But who <laughs> would leave this song in a vault? <laughs> Bruce Springsteen. <laughs> yeah. I mean, think about it. I, you know, if, if Restless Nights was a song that would make someone's career, Restless Nights ultimately was a was a relationship song, uh, a power pop song. This song is written about a current event, and it's distilled down in the most, like, sort of bone-chilling fashion to what was happening there. And it's presented in just an amazing rock arrangement. Oh, oh, absolutely. The 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 drums are just freaking amazing. And as I was saying earlier, there's no guitar on the river. He saved all the guitar solos for, for these outtakes. And that guitar, the guitar attack in there from the start of the song, the middle solo is just it's it's an it's very intense. It's probably his most punk esque song that he, that he's ever done. And it just I wonder what it would have done on the charts in, you know, in March of 1980 or whatever it was. It would have been it would have been something else. So I guess I guess 1979. I forget. Was this written in time for No Nukes? I believe it was. Yeah. Yeah. I, it, it, it was. Remember, it was the first song recorded for for the river. Right. right. So it would have been because the river was already recorded. Right. I mean, could, you know, in in our little alternate history, what happens if Bruce plays roulette at at those shows? That that would have that would have that would have been something something amazing. It would have been that would have been legendary. It absolutely would have been. You you think of the response to something and it was 20 years later. Now, the media was a little bit different 20 years later. But when he first played American Skin, imagine if he had played roulette at at those no nuke shows. It, It would have been monster. Well, there wouldn't have been much buildup like like American Skin had after it was played in Atlanta before before being played in in New York. That's but true. It would just—I'm sure there would have been more 
it would be it would have been communicated more to the audience that that yeah this song is about what we're what we're fighting about what we're fighting to prevent and the fact that it would have been a instant instant classic as Kurt Loder called it in 1988 after he finally played it in Worcester uh, it just it would have exploded it, for sure and, and they, they they probably wouldn't have had a choice but not but to release it had he played it at those shows as as a single that is oh i th- i think you're right and Another interesting component about it is, as you noted, it was the first song recorded for The River. And I I think unlike Darkness, we've all heard the stories and Steve talked about the absolute torture of the Darkness sessions when he spoke to us. And that was one of the reasons why he became a producer on The River. Maybe he had that big of an impact because immediately right out of the gate, they record the, the first song as Roulette and they really capture the sound that they're looking for which even though Roulette didn't get released, I think that sound carried through the entire sessions. Oh, yes. I think uh, Max, Max is quoted in that book, in, the, in, the, in Brian Hyatt's book, about saying this is a the sound they, they've been looking for, and they, and, th- that they, and they finally found it in, in, the, in that studio, Studio A. Yeah, that, there was magic there. And, <laughs> and, and just it, it really... It's it, it's really remarkable that a man could have this body of work, and as you say, they could have at any point released another record. They could have released songs to radio. To to just think that now this song only sat in the vault for eight years. I say only in quotes, <laughs> right. but it, it, they did eventually release it, and obviously became an important part of the Tunnel Show. But it really, just re- re- remarkable that the depth of the material and that these are the songs being discarded and i and i think that certainly that is steve's point to the extent that he he lost these arguments you know he he would have killed for these songs that's <laughs> that's steve's point that anyone would have killed for them yeah steve was killing himself to write one good song and bruce is just cranking them out left and right and it's like it's not, it's not fair it's not fair bruce <laughs> Hey everyone, this is Tuck from Fit for a King, an off-road minivan. Every week I bring you fun interviews alongside your favorite metalcore entertainers with my new podcast, Get Tucked. Join me every Monday with bands like Counterparts, Crystal Lake, like Moths to Flames, and many more. We play unsigned and undiscovered bands, deep dive into each artist's history, and of course provide the greatest breakdowns in current metalcore. Tune in to Get Tucked every Monday, out now through Sound Talent Media. Hey there, I am Johnny Christ from Avenged Sevenfold, and I've got a podcast called Drinks with Johnny you're going to want to check out. I sit down with a bunch of different people from all different walks of life, from professional wrestlers to actors, comedians, fighters, musicians, Everything in between. I'm just looking to make some friends and have a good time doing it. So if that sounds like something you're into, go check out Drinks with Johnny, streaming everywhere now. Now, a song that's not on quite the same level, <laughs> uh, Dollhouse, which is which is a fun song. It was played the one time, right? Yeah. Uh, Vienna, Austria, April 1999. Now, he seems a little testy in this song. <laughs> Yeah, it's. I would describe this one. It sounds very Elvis Costello esque, and it's not. Again, I was reading Brian Hyatt's book, and he described it as the song is lacking the usual empathy that Bruce has for the characters in his song. And it's maybe this is uh, 
I don't, uh, more of him coming through in his relationships than basically all uh, most of his uh, most of his other songs. That he's, you know, he doesn't come come across as quite the nicest guy here. No, he does not. And this is the first record, as we know, and he he discussed this at the Garden when he when he first introed the full performance of the River. He he was writing, I think, on this record a little bit different when it became when it came to men and women. And you're right. Maybe this was a, a bit out of his perspective and how relationships were going. What, what's your sense on that? Well, as I said, he doesn't have, or as Brian Hyatt said, he doesn't have a lot of empathy for the for the woman character that that she's built up this perfect world and her her, her own dollhouse, and it's just going to fall apart. And that's not. That's not how Bruce Bruce usually conveys that kind of stuff. I mean, you compare it to racing in the street where she just sits on the porch of her daddy's house. All her little dream has been torn and he's coming across a lot more harsh in, in this one. I mean, what do you think of these first the first four lines? Well, ever since you were a little girl, you set the rules in your little world. But girls grow up and they throw their toys away. You're a big girl now, but you still want to play. I, I, I guess it, it it's, it's not the most artful way he's ever put stuff like that. <laughs> No, it's not. Uh, and it's, I mean, it's very immature writing compared to what he would later do on, on Tunnel of Love, obviously. Yes. Uh, so we just chalk it up as, I mean, it was an early attempt at the man-woman love songs that, that he was that he was writing at the time, and he was going to get better at it. Now, of course, Tracks came out in 1998. The world was different in 1998, way different even than it is now. The question, because we we know also from some of the other outtakes that have been released since, like Cindy. Now, Cindy did not make tracks disc two and something like Dollhouse did. Now, now we're sort of getting in. For, now, we started by talking about the songs that didn't make the river. Now we're <laughs> talking about songs that didn't make tracks disc two. But it is. I mean, if someone said to me, should Cindy be on here or Dollhouse be on here? I would say Cindy, wouldn't you? Uh, I would. Well, of course, I would say both. But if I had to have, if I have to choose, well, I guess we had to make a choice. Say, even though I would, I we had heard Cindy at the time. So Dollhouse was previously, at least in a full recorded take, we had we had not heard Dollhouse yet. Well, that's uh, a good point. And of course, we <laughs> I mean, that, hear but, everything. Right. We yeah, we want to hear everything, and that's a different story. But in terms of uh, topically, I think Cindy comes across. I mean, he's a little bit stalker esque in that song, but at least he's <laughs> at least he has sympathy for, for for the girl, whereas here there's there's none of that. If it was a little inartful within the next few years, I mean, by the time he got the tunnel and certainly beyond that, he he wrote. I mean, there are so many beautiful songs on similar thematic ground where he, he really, I think, layers it in the way that Dollhouse is not layered. No, no. But hey, the the music is. The music is tremendous. I I love it. I, I did you know, I guess I just ignore the lyrics for the most part. <laughs> yeah, it's not never been one of my favorites. And I, I listened to it today for the first time, I think, in a while. And it it, it is what it is. <laughs> it's 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 an outtake and I, and uh we're glad to hear it on tracks too. I mean on tracks disc too, but it wasn't gonna make the river. In any now, now speaking of songs that rise to a different level the next track is where the bands are uh, uh this is really uh, how many songs are we up to now this is the third one i would say restless nights certainly roulette and i want to be where the bands are would have been a monster hit 
if released in 1980. When you think about the fact that the, and I'm not criticizing Fade Away, which is a song that I like a lot, but it really was not a great choice for a single. I think there's pretty widespread agreement on that. You think that it, where the bands are could have been a follow-up single to Hungry Heart. And oh, absolutely. It, you just, where does the record go from there? If you release where where the bands are after Hungry Heart, Hungry Heart peaked it. I forget what it peaked at. It was in the top. Was it in the top five, top ten? I think it hit number five. Okay, so I mean, where the bands are would have been like a huge follow up to that. Whereas Fade Away, of course, was definitely a much more muted follow up and had nowhere near the chart success. This is a this is a song. <laughs> yes, it is, and this is. So it's almost like it's about Asbury Park. I want to be where the bands are. <laughs> and and this is one of the few songs on 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 this disc that actually we could have replaced something on on the river and it nothing would have changed. I I know he mentioned out in the street in the in what in one of the interviews in in 1998, but I would also suggest that it could it could replace uh, Sherry Darling and again nothing would be lost. Now, Sherry Darling has never been a personal favorite of mine, so I would re- make that change in a heartbeat. Out in the Street is one of those songs. If he's left out in the street, we'd probably be talking about it on this podcast. Well, that's true. It's always the, the, the forbidden fruit is or is always the, you know, always most attractive. So grass is greener, you know, whatever cliche you want to use. So, yeah. <laughs> I don't think Adam the Street could have been a single as well. I don't think yes. it would have been as effective a single as where the bands are. To me, in a way, 10th Avenue was the story of the E Street Band. This is sort of a power pop version of not just the E Street Band, but music in general that you want to be where the bands are because that's what's bringing you life. And yes. as we know, that is the theme basically of Bruce's entire live career, right down to, is there anybody alive out there? (laughs) I want something that's going to shake my brains. That's what I want here. And And, and that is what what... we want. That's why we go to the shows. Yes. Over and over and over again. He he really distilled it down here. And musically, it's just, it's a pile driver. And the one thing with this song is, and I don't know what would have happened had they played it in 1980, 81. This song on a reunion tour even though as great as the reunion tour was, and we both think that they never really nailed the performance of this song on the reunion tour. No, they did not. I was thinking about that today as well. And that it was never really one of my favorites. I mean, I see how great it is and I, I I understand it, but it's not one that I would, I would love to hear like the following track, but I wonder how much of that was because they never really nailed it in 99 and 2000. Whereas I think they finally did in 2012 with uh, with the arrangement that they used that was released on from Gothenburg and Fedway. Oh, that was that was really great. Yeah, that there, see there that worked also, really well. There was also a version he played the the night of the tremendous rainstorm at Giant Stadium in 2003 in the encore. There was a version of where the bands are that I thought was better than the reunion tour performances as well. But you're right, the the 2012 performance he really nailed and well it, well. I'm sorry, um, go ahead. What, one problem that he had, and or one issue, is that, not to speak too ill of Clarence, but he never really nailed the, the sax solo. And that when that, that's a big part of the song, and I'm sure he would have nailed it in 1980 and 81. It just would have been, the roof would have been blown off whatever arena he was playing at, but he just couldn't do it in, in 99. 
Oh, the hand claps. Oh, my God. <laughs> I like those. No, I'm saying uh, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, the, the, that kind of crowd participation and and just the frenzy that the song sort of creates. It's it, <laughs> it's just awesome. Yeah. Well, maybe, maybe that's another reason it didn't work in 99 and 2000 because they had to slow it down. Whereas in 1980, they would have been powering through it at the speed of the record. And, you know, that alternate history where loose ends and where the bands are were, were played live every night. <laughs> Let's, I want to I want to see what that history looked like. Now, that would be a good history. But as we know, we don't have the DeLorean, so we're not going to find out. No, well, we have to get the DeLorean and convince Bruce to put those two songs on the album and convince him to play them every night. So more than just DeLorean. That is true. Should we go on to the next song, which is yes, Living on the Edge of the World? We're not going about loose ends? Wait, I we're skipping loose ends? No, we're not skipping loose ends. Did I, did I go out of order? Where the bands are, then loose ends. Oh, right. You're Unless right. you I'm have sorry. it in a different order on, on no, your playlist. No, I jumped ahead. I jumped ahead. Sorry about that. Uh, All right. As we started this episode, as I said, the uh, this was sort of the impetus for this episode because I asked Steve about it. It is inexplicable that this song was left off. That's not a criticism of Bruce. I, I think certainly Steve agrees with me on that. It was perhaps the biggest lost argument. This is a song that would have fit on the river and it, it would have fit in a big way. And I think it would have been a monster hit perhaps after hungry heart it, it it could have been a defining hit of his career and it was not released until 1998 well interesting i when i was going through and saying okay where could this song go on the river i actually had a hard time with this one except for the only slot i really saw was uh, was fade away where did you where would oh, you have it go on look i'm going to tell you maybe it's not the greatest sequencing I'm pulling crush on you off and putting on loose ends. I, you know, if okay. that alters it a little bit. No, that works. After out in the street, crush on you really works. Then we have to find something else for, for you can look to be perfectly blunt. Um, but yeah, that would have been a powerful sequence right there. Hungry heart out in the street, loose ends, boom, boom, boom. Now we're not slighting any of his choices. Obviously he is the artist. We're, we're just talking about these things because otherwise there'd be no show, but the, the, the thing here is Crush on You is a rather insignificant song, especially well, he, when com compared to Loose Ends. Well, he's made that that joke a few times. And there's even a there's um on the on the IEM of the the original IEM recording that circulated of the River Show from from the Garden 2009. He was joking around like this could have been Loose Ends. This could have been Roulette. This could have right, been Restless yeah. Nights. And so he 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 knew, he knows that Crush on You isn't the, it's not the world beater uh, that, these, that these other songs could have been. But he thought, he thought it fit. And not, it's, as you said, it's kind of hard to argue with him, especially considering the album went to number one pretty quickly. The one thing I'll say here is, at least artistically, Crush on You has not been played much over the years, except when he's playing The River Complete. Loose Ends has become a song that has been played uh, not enough <laughs> not enough for us anyway no but it has certainly been played it is one of the most frequent outtakes i think to be played yes yes it is and he it was almost a regular back in 99 when it was he was seemed like he was alternating uh, where the bands are and loose ends in that post uh 10th avenue slot and and 
I mean, I am very thankful they released the June 27th, 2000 show because that is the best performance of Loose Ends that I think has been captured. So this song is another relationship song, obviously written a little bit more artfully than Dollhouse. Just the whole thing. I mean, what do you think about the lyrics? We didn't count tomorrow's. We took what we could and baby, we ran. There was no time for sorrow. Every place we went, I held your hand. I mean, that's that's really damn good. (laughs) Well, and he was talking about taking, enjoying the moment of the relationship and not really counting on, on what happens tomorrow. And then it seems that tomorrow it does happen. And then they start uh, strangling all the love they had that was in that relationship. And they just, they killed it. Now, so, the like, image of the noose is a bit chilling if you really think about it, but it's presented in this sort of power pop way. And in in a song that is so effective, we really don't stop to think how dark the metaphor is of a relationship being strangled by a noose. What do you think about that? Well, it, it works, I guess, lyrically. I, I wouldn't, I never even thought about it until now. I mean, well, this that's is what he's saying there, right? Right. Yeah. He's, they're strangling the, the life out of the relationship. Yeah. And I get that. I get that. And I, the, it, the, it works. I, I don't have any problems with that Look at, at this point in time. Oh, I don't have a problem with it. It's just, it is a little, it, well, and we've seen this before in some of his poppier songs. I mean, certainly Cadillac Ranch sets uh, music that is certainly pop oriented and rock, straightforward rock uh, music to pretty dark lyrics. Well, that, so is Dancing in the Dark. That's true too. (laughs) It was pointed out to me that that's, that's what rock and roll and that's that's the roots of rock and roll it's from the blues and and from that r&b where it's it's from that marriage of of the blues and the blues lyrics and the r&b music uh that's that's rock and roll you know and sometimes you don't stop to think about those things at all because i mean it presented in such an effective package Uh, this is this is like a perfect pop song (laughs) a pop rock song let's say yes it is yeah, and that's and again, that's that, it would have been a major hit in 1979 had had they actually released that single album. I think this would have been of all the songs, although where the bands are really has that sort of, especially when we're talking in the context of 1980, it, it really has that sort of jet engine propulsion that mm-hmm. could have been. Uh, would it have gone to number one? I don't know if Bruce was capable of getting a number one hit in 1980. Of course, he's never had one. I would toss it up. It's a toss up to me. The between loose ends and where the bands are, which one could have been a bigger hit? <laughs> All right. All right. What do I mean, you think? Such a, I would go with loose ends, even even if that's just personal preference. Um, there's not a lot of there's no guitar solos or anything. It has that the killer sax solo from Clarence, and it's just the the chorus. The chorus works really well. That's what you need. That's what you need in the in a in a top ten hit. You need a you need a hook and a chorus. It's it's just so remarkable as we're talking about it because you really Bruce never had a hit single except for Hungry Heart before Born in the USA. And at the time Born in the USA came out, I think it was unusual. Really, it was Thriller that started the concept that albums had like multiple hit singles. And and then there was Purple Rain in there as well. And then, of course, Bruce had seven top 10 hits off of Born in the USA. But you think about it, it had, had they taken the step of putting these songs out through some kind of package like you were talking about or whether the original River album would have been different. 
there really could have been like, and this is a big statement to make, but to <laughs> me, it's almost like a Beatles record, you know, where, where we listen to some of the Beatles records today and we're like, oh my God, hit, hit, hit. You know, you listen <laughs> to like Abbey Road. That's really what he left on the table here, it seems to me, as we're going through these songs. But he would have been, he would have sacrificed what he wanted to say at that point in time. I mean, well, it's almost, and he, and he, I mean he went with the, his artistic vision over over success, over commercial success in a major way. And uh, it's obviously something that Stephen disagreed with. And but it's interesting that 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 Landau was totally on board with it. Well, I think we know, especially from reading Steve's book and even hearing what he said to us and to some other people, I think that Steve and Landau, I'm sure they have tremendous mutual respect for one another, but it sounds like they don't sometimes come to the same conclusion as to how the music should be handled. Oh, I oh, I totally get that. I'm not I'm not ignoring that. I'm just I'm looking at the fact that that for Landau as Bruce's manager, he didn't he didn't say Bruce, let's go for the big for the big commercial success and release all these potential hit singles. He said, let's Bruce stick to your artistic vision and we'll go from there. Well, the thing is that Steve really had that sort of hit oriented background. Mm -hmm. Even if you think about his work with the rascals later on and stuff like that, Steve clearly, and, and he was upfront about this. He wanted hits and, and he was struggling to write hits himself. I think, you know, uh, to the extent that Southside had success, Southside was not having big hits. And, Steve was sitting there going, oh, my God, here's a guy. He, it's one hit after another, and they're not being released. <laughs> yeah, that, that probably drove him nuts, and I, I, and it did. I, it did. He was, he was frustrated that, as you just said, Bruce was cranking out these hits, and he was struggling to write one. And, you know, it, 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 was, the, it was his role as a producer for, for Gary U.S. Bonds before they got that, this little girl and then out of work. That's true, too. Yeah, that that's and Steve is a producer, even if you listen to his later stuff, like even the Darlene Love album, which, of course, by then Darlene Love was not going to have hits. But the, the the way the music is presented, it it, it could have been a hit at another time. You know, mm -hmm. if Darlene Love's album had been released 30 years ago, some of that <laughs> stuff may have been hits and 35 35 years ago yeah i don't i don't i don't see that i don't see her being a hit in okay right yeah because well i forget <laughs> I, how old we are 30 years ago is already the 90s we're already at the grunge so yes yeah. no, darlene love was not going to have a hit during grunge yeah that's true actually I, aren't we almost exactly at the 30th anniversary of grunge yeah like nirvana the, yeah it just happened and and 10 came out 30 years ago uh last month yeah i remember when i remember nirvana's blowing up with team spirit in the fall of October of, of, of 91. But anyway, <laughs> yeah, but you do sort of forget how those things all blend together. Uh, the, 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 and, and that's why also by the time these songs come out in a way, the grunge discussion is relevant because these songs land in the world in 1998. When at that point, their, their ability to be hits and their effectiveness well, they're they're equally as effective for the people who are listening to them, but to get people to listen to them in 1998 was was a much taller order than they would have been in 1980. Uh, that's certainly true. Uh, things that really, really fractured in terms of I'm not using the right word. Uh, diversified. There was no just one top 40 station. There were 
yeah, the top 40 station for every genre. And I mean, it would have been interesting to see if he had actually tried to tried to push one of these as an actual single like like he would have done in 1992 with Human Touch. Well, and we're going to get to I Want to Be With You. That was the track that was used to introduce tracks. And I wouldn't say that they really pushed it as a single, though. There was no No. video. Well, well, that's that's my point. They didn't make an effort. They didn't say, here's the new single from Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band. Here's the video. Here's the band playing. Here they are. And there was no, they didn't do that. They just put out the three song sampler. It was, I think it was included in like the songs book and it was, it was sent to radio, but they didn't promote it in the way like a normal album, which I guess it's, it's not. Obviously. Okay. So let's move on to living on the edge of the world, which now in the proper sequence after loose ends, what do you think of this one? Fun. Man, that's a fun song. And again, it was, it was, it was a shame. It wasn't performed until 2012, but uh, we were lucky enough to be there, and it just just blew the roof off, off the place. Well, there wasn't wasn't a roof to be blown off, but had there been a roof at, at MetLife Stadium that night? Oh yeah, I wasn't there. Now maybe that would change my opinion. This, to be honest, is a song I don't love. Perhaps if I hadn't heard "Open All Night" first, I, I would feel differently about it. But "Open All Night" is a song that I really, really do love, uh, especially some of the arrangements that he's done over the years of it. And to, to me, this seems like the lesser track to that. I, now, and, and I grant you, there is some fun uh, musicality here. Again, you've got the the uh, sort of punkish backup vocals and all that stuff. But it, it the song doesn't come together for me in the same way "Open All Night" does. And 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 of course, they're basically the same track. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he as you know, he dropped a bit of this one into into Ramrod in in 1980. So which obviously became was released as open all night two years, two years later, as you said, it's not a, a big track. It's just a fun track. And I would love to hear, I would love to know if there's an open all night that sounds that was recorded in, in this vein at all from 1982. Yes. I think we all would like to hear that. And, and fingers crossed. It's unclear if that would be part of our tracks two discussion, or there will be a separate USA box. Or uh, Nebraska. Presumably, <laughs> presumably Nebraska one box. of these days, we are going to get to hear that. One of these days, that's that. That's the goal. And in the meantime, you know, this is not a bad track, and I, I certainly enjoy listening to it. And it's just fun. Okay, so we're we're gonna break it there because this show is running really long. So we'll pick up next time with Wages of Sin and all the other songs on disc two. We're also gonna cover the archive Indianapolis, March twentieth, two thousand and eight, which has now been released. And also, uh, in a little bit of a surprise, we learned today that Bruce is going to be on Colbert Monday night, and he's going to be performing. I guess that's to promote the Obama book. Um, I have to imagine that it is. He's been doing a lot of other stuff with CBS this weekend, doing some interviews and such. But uh, yeah, um, even a song performance is, seems, is was very surprising to me. That may be network synergy. I'm not sure. I have to go back and look if the publisher is in any way related to CBS. They both <laughs> both may be Viacom companies. I was going to ask if, uh, if 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 Viacom owns Spotify, <laughs> but uh, I, you know, I don't there's know. so many. There's, 
the tangled webs we weave. You can't even keep up with this stuff, and that's not really what we're here to talk about. But for whatever reason, he's on Colbert Monday night, and it is a bit surprising, I think. But let's see what happens. It would be really cool if he did a new song, but I'm sure that's not going to be the case. Yeah, I'm not holding my breath. I'm I'm thinking it's going to be something along the lines of Thunder Road or Born to Run or or I'll See You in My Dreams. Just, just my prediction is one of those three. I don't know as it relates to the book. I'd also maybe throw in Born in the USA as a possibility. All right. I, I can see that. I can see well, it Let's happening. see what happens. We're going to cover that in the next episode. So this one is obviously, if you're listening to it, you know it's out. And the next one will be out <laughs> a week later. All right. With that, let's wrap it up. None But the Brave is a presentation of Bull Market Entertainment and part of Evergreen Podcasts. If you want to interact with us, find us on Twitter at NBTB Podcast or on the web at nonebutthebravepodcast.com. So for Hal Schwartz, I'm Phil McLean saying uh, thanks for listening, and we'll see you further on up the road. Thank you so much. We'll be seeing you. Hey, what's up? My name's Lurk, and I'm the host of Lamb Goat's Van Flip Podcast. Every week, I have in-depth conversations with bands from all over the scene, big and small. We also like to keep our finger on the pulse and showcase up-and-coming bands on the show as well. So come check out Lamb Goat's Van Flip Podcast.